0: Buenos días, Mary. ¿Cómo estás, Español? Uh,
1: Sí, Dan. Mi español es bueno. Bueno. You haven't joined the wrong podcast. (laughs) We're not going to speak in Spanish the whole time, but I have just started Spanish lessons, which is why
0: we were practicing Spanish just then. Your first one you were saying?
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. First lesson today. I think it's a 13-week course, something like that.
0: You're in the right level class. I guess that's the first challenge, making sure that's right.
1: Yeah, that was tricky because I had to sort of self-assess what level to go into. And I'm not a complete beginner because I did GCSE Spanish, but that was quite a long time ago. So it seems like I'm just about right. It's a really nice group. Quite a lot of them started with the absolute beginner session like a year ago. A few of them know each other really well, which is actually really nice because it's all very friendly. So and quite conversational, which is
0: great. It sounds like you're sort of a level up from ordering cocktails off a menu and an order of hovas, ranchos, whatever it is, and for breakfast or something.
1: Just about. Yeah, just about. I'm still firmly stuck in the present tense, but we will go to the future and the past So oh, well. in this course. So. Those are great
0: places to go. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Go. absolutely. Dan, you said you've been doing French lessons. Was it seven years you've been doing that? That's a really long time. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of it. I mean, my wife's for French. We speak English at home, obviously. But since we've been together, I've been doing French lessons talk every week. Really got to enjoy it a lot. And as I sort of say to people... People will recognize this, I'm sure, who speak other languages. When you sort of embrace another language to a decent degree, it's as much about learning about how people think, how a different culture actually thinks, as much as it is about learning words. And there's so many little situations, for example, where there's not a direct translation of something in French in English. And that tells you a lot about the difference between French and English cultures. It's really interesting to see that coming through.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you realize some words, like if you've gone back to the Latin root, actually the way that they've then interpreted that root's quite different. But I think my favorite example from today was, I'm going to forget the word now, but it's whatever the word is for retired in Spanish. It's something like jubilate or jubilante, which is just such a nicer way of describing retirement. So yeah, yeah, that was my little takeaway that I've now forgotten from today.
0: Maybe you can work on a rebrand in English as well for that. Onto the topic of today's podcast, I mean, talking a little bit there about obviously different perspectives, and that's what i are hoping to bring you in today's episode with Mawa Ture. I suppose it's one thing that you and I um, feel reasonably strongly about, try and include a bit of different perspectives on our platform and, and use it to sort of put those forward a bit. When was it you first heard from Mauer and what made you want to bring her on as a guest?
1: So Mawa, I think it was probably about a year ago Mawa spoke. It was a diversity and inclusion focused conference, and that is the sort of key theme that we'll be talking about today. The specific topic she spoke about was microaggressions, which we will come to if people are less familiar with that word. It just really, really stuck with me. And I think it's an area of diversity and inclusion that's quite underappreciated. She's just got the most beautiful way of describing microaggressions in a way that I think is really accessible. So anyone who'd struggled to kind of understand what it might mean before, um, what it might be physically type thing, But also how it makes people feel and the impact it can have. And obviously that link is extremely important when you then think about if you do bring it back to the sort of investment scene, decision making and people being able to operate to the best of their ability, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I just thought, yeah, she spoke very, very well. She then went on maternity leave. So it's been a while till we've been able to get her on the show, but she's now back in action. So really thrilled to be able to have her here today.
0: Yeah. I've really enjoyed the conversation and it's helped me sort of reevaluate certain situations in the workplace from a perspective that I just wouldn't have looked at them from before, which I think has been really helpful. So I suppose I would encourage listeners, even if you don't suffer from microaggressions or you don't think you're guilty of delivering them, then being that third party is often a key role there. And I've even, since we had this conversation a few days ago, I've seen a couple of situations that could fall into this category literally in the few days since we had the conversation. So there you go.
1: It's so interesting, isn't it? When once you've had the conversation and you've sort of brought it to life, if you like, you see it everywhere. Yeah you're just so much more on the lookout. And that's the point, really, of this conversation and this episode today.
0: Great. All right. Shall we get to it? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it.
1: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers, and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Today, we are delighted to welcome inclusion consultant, Mamawa Toure. Mamawa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. And I should say, I've just called you Mamawa there. That's because I know you are sometimes referred to as Mamawa, but what's your preferred name for us to use this session?
2: Yeah, if you could call me Mauer, that would be absolutely great. Thank you. Okay,
0: Brill. Mauer, why don't you give us a sense of your role as an inclusion consultant? What are the sort of things you do? Who do you do work for?
2: I am a freelance equality, diversity and inclusion consultant. My speciality at the moment is delivering sessions on microaggressions, predominantly microaggressions within the workplace. And my background is financial services. So that really is the space that I have the most expertise in. So in terms of who I work for, in that regard, I work for myself and I deliver a lot of these sessions to any kind of organisations who are on that equality, diversity and inclusion journey. But I should say that I only do that part time. So I do also work for a regulator
1: as well. Fantastic. And we will focus more of our discussion today on the topic of microaggressions. One of the reasons that Mao is here today is that I attended a conference about a year ago on that topic and thought that you've described microaggressions in a fantastic way. So we thought we'd bring that to this audience. But we would also love to hear your views on wider equality, diversity, and inclusion issues. Mal, before we jump into all of that, what's one thing that we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? I
2: sing in my spare time. I sing in a function band. So I'm
1: a very, oh, wow. very busy
2: person. In a past life, I was on the BBC show, I'd do anything. I did a terrible impression of Nancy and then a Cockney accent and I'm sure <laughs> you find it somewhere online.
1: <laughs> we will definitely be looking that up. So function band, what kind of functions? Weddings, that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, at the moment, it's a lot of weddings. So a lot of weddings were postponed due to lockdown and now they're obviously being rescheduled. So it's yeah, pretty much two or three weddings a week if
0: I can. Wow. What sort of genre of music does it span the whole kind of area or are you doing a particular type?
2: Various genres, so R&B and soul, also a bit of UKG, so a bit of garage in there for some garage fans, things like that, and just general pop. So it's weddings, so whatever anybody feels like, there's always a lot of Ed Sheeran mm. in there for a first dance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and do you get many weddings where they ask for a range of genres across, or is it does it tend to be we like this type of music and you stick with one genre?
2: a range I'd say and it's quite nice that we could offer that because obviously it's two people Mm. coming together and they tend to have some things that they really like but there's always one that maybe the husband really likes or maybe the bride really likes and the other partner's like oh goodness me like this is the (laughs) request. (laughs) Excellent.
0: I think I definitely need a crash course on UKG I'm not sure I'm totally familiar with that but (laughs) anyway that's probably getting a little bit off topic from what you joined us to talk about so why don't we get into it then so Microaggressions then, why don't you just walk listeners through where what are they at a high level and sort of why it's so important to focus a bit of awareness on them?
2: When I'm delivering my sessions, I like to explain them. At their highest, highest level, when our subconscious leanings and our subconscious bias, they leak throughout the things that we say and the things that we do. But if you look at the definition of microaggressions, and there are so many definitions of microaggressions, Mm -hmm. it's where there's a small act or remark that basically makes somebody of a minority feel uncomfortable or degraded or offended, The key thing to focus on in terms of microaggressions is that they can be intentional, but they can also be unintentional, which means they can happen every day, frequently, without us even knowing that we're
1: doing them. And do you have a sense of, I mean, it feels to me that if it's a microaggression, but it's an intentional microaggression, then it's an aggression, however small. And most people would sort of agree that that's something that is avoidable and those ones are maybe more obvious, Do you have a sense of whether it's the conscious ones or the subconscious ones that are most damaging or can be most damaging? I
2: think when things are intentional, they're more obvious. So it's easier to address them, whether at the time or after the fact. I'd say when things are unintentional, you're almost left with that. Did that really happen? And the movement has moved on before you can actually really get a grasp of what's happened and know what to do. The moment's passed, and then you kind of carry on with your life. And inevitably, like something else might happen within the next hour, for example. So it's this kind of cumulative effect of things that you don't quite know how
1: to address or realise are happening. You obviously have more recently been delivering lots of sessions on microaggressions, but your role is broader than that. So how would you view microaggressions as... Feeding into the overall DEI picture? So, in terms of
2: the overall DEI picture, I think that microaggressions play a huge part. I mean, we talk a lot about diversity, but I mean, I've listened to a number of your podcasts before, so you all clearly have quite a grasp of what we're speaking about. But inclusion is also really key. There's lots of things that we can do to try and enhance diversity and encourage diversity, but our inclusion, nothing can really stick so essentially without inclusion we can't maintain diversity the two go hand in hand and because microaggressions are so pervasive but as i've explained can be unintentional and innocuous it's hard to get a grasp of it and to put measures in place to actually control it or make any meaningful change quite quickly or at all
0: really Presumably, putting a clear name on it is the name microaggressions, I mean, is an important part of that. I mean, if I think back, I probably only heard the word microaggressions maybe, I want to say like three or four years ago, something like that. And obviously, it's existed for much longer than that. But I suppose having something where you can clearly put a label on it, then you can start to talk about it. Presumably, that is sort of a helpful part of the journey, but only the to start with it, really.
2: Absolutely. I'd say for me personally, actually, the label was really powerful and really positive because myself, I am a black female and there are a number of situations within the workplace and in other environments where I haven't had that that full sense of psychological safety. We speak a lot about bringing your whole self to work and mm. I couldn't do that and I didn't know why. I just had this underlying tension, this underlying Guard, and I couldn't really articulate why I felt like that or that I even felt like that and it was actually only discovering this term more deeply that actually made me really understand oh that's what that was oh that's what that feeling was that situation that didn't seem to have a massive impact on me at the time cumulatively the amount of times that that was happening meant that that environment. Wasn't a
1: comfortable environment
2: for
1: me. I mean, that's a really key part of this whole thing, isn't it? That you've referred a couple of times to the sort of, well, each individual example might not feel very big. You don't say anything, you don't complain or whatever the right sort of, you don't raise it, you don't call it out. But actually, the accumulation of all of those issues means that you're left feeling very uncomfortable. And that clearly is not a situation that we want to be happening. And maybe putting on a label on it, I don't want to use the word gives permission to speak about it sooner because I don't think you should need permission to speak about it. But it sort of normalizes the fact that you might speak about it based on a very small example, which in isolation, someone might think that that probably isn't enough to make someone feel extremely uncomfortable. But the point is it keeps going.
2: Absolutely. And I'd say I'm a big lover of analogies. I won't go through too many, but one that actually somebody else raised in one of my sessions was, for example, like stubbing your toe you could stub your toe and we've all done it and it hurts so badly when it happens it's one of those pains that you just you can't even make a sound sometimes it's that mm. bad but you could um maybe trip over and kind of bump your toe or you might be sitting at your desk and you might be tapping your toe against the end of the desk like continuously all of those things might have a different impact and You might be wearing sandals or you might be wearing steel toe boots. All of these things have different impacts, but they all still have an impact. And it really helped me realize that something small, something small as me tapping my toe against the end of my desk for a day will hurt by the end of the day. But I might not have noticed that that was what was
1: happening at the time. So Mawa, maybe for the listeners, if you could help bringing this to life. So we've given it a label and that sort of gives it prominence. Could you maybe, if you're happy to share some of your own experiences of microaggressions, either in your own personal experience or that you've come across through the work you've done, just to really put those examples around it?
2: A good example of a microaggression could be, let's say you are a female in a really male-dominated room, just an example, and let's say every time you went to speak or quite often you got interrupted and somebody said, oh, well, I think this, or well, hold on a second, what about this? You're being treated differently, maybe not knowingly, but by virtue of the fact that you're a female, and well, the effect of that will be that you probably would speak up less you would be yep. well-armed before you started talking because you want to be taken seriously. Other examples could be eye rolls and things like that. So when you're speaking, somebody's saying, yes, I understand the point that you're making and it's very important, but they're rolling their eyes. Kind of similarly to what I say to my husband when he wants to watch football, which is terrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but all of that is a microaggression because mm. the underlying message is actually different to what you're overtly saying. And the underlying message is something that's negative. And I would say in my experience, the microaggressions that I've received the most of within the workplace and outside of the workplace. So for me, hair touching, that's a big thing. You may or may not have heard that there's a lot going on around (laughs) the afros and whether or not that's a professional hairstyle and things like that. But yes, I do. I do have a natural afro and if I ever, several times when I've been in the office and my hair maybe looked slightly larger than normal, and I don't mean in a full afro style, I mean it could have even been held back. people coming up to me and touching my hair and saying how wonderful and how amazing it looked all the while while their hands are in my hair and while they're touching
1: my hair. Mm, and presumably without permission, they didn't ask first.
2: Yeah, so without permission, or with permission or with assumed permission, should I say. So somebody saying, your hair looks amazing. Can I touch it? Well, they're already reaching out to touch your hair. Mm -hmm. There's an assumed yes already. There's an assumed consent. And being on the receiving end of that, it can be quite degrading while you're standing there and just Mm. effectively, I don't want to use a strong word, but it does almost feel like you're being petted or, or examined. And it's not necessarily from a negative place. It's often because people think it looks great and they're interested in it. But particularly when that's happened in a work environment, it's not overly comfortable and you don't always
1: know how to address it in that setting as well. So, I I think with some of the earlier examples that you gave us there of microaggressions, I was starting to feel that they were perhaps relatively directly linked to unconscious biases. So your examples about women being spoken over in meetings, and perhaps that's an unconscious feeling that women aren't able to be so technically minded, or they don't want to speak up, or they're not as confident in their views, or that sort of thing. But that latest example you gave isn't really linked at all to unconscious biases in the way that I took it. So I guess just to kind of really pinpoint that this is a completely distinct Not completely, but this is a distinct issue that actually can cut across all kinds of other diversity and inclusion type issues, rather than being intrinsically linked just to one area of that space.
2: Yeah, so microaggressions can cut across all diversity and inclusion issues. But what I would say is to touch someone or something without asking, it underscores that sense of privilege. It can be closely linked to underlying sense of superiority, not intentional, but it still could be there. And I'd say that's probably the part that really makes it fall quite firmly within that space because we don't do that to everybody.
0: I was having the same thought, Mary. I couldn't quite articulate how there were differences in those two examples. And I guess with the hair touching example, I presume people doing that, like you say, might actually be from a good place. They might think it is, that is. They might genuinely think they're making a compliment and have no idea that it's been taken that way. And so it's kind of in this bucket of things that they just have no idea will be interpreted that way by someone, which is clearly a really important bucket to expose to people and say, Look, make sure you're not doing these things because you might be stood there saying, mm. oh, I was trying to be nice, but someone has taken that potentially really quite badly. And you need to be aware that that's how it's gone down.
2: I say it's almost not even how it's taken as well. It's how it's a learned behavior as to what you can and can't do. Yeah. So if you have mm. a learned behavior that you can cut people off in meetings, because but let's take the male female example and those underlying biases there, that is a learned behavior. And equally, there's a learned behavior that you think you can touch black people's hair, despite the fact that it comes from a good place. It hasn't Mm -hmm. actually crossed your mind that you shouldn't do that. It's not necessarily about how somebody might be feeling about it. It's about whether or not
0: you should do that. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Sorry, Mary. That is a really good point, because if you're not careful, because like you say, you shouldn't do that full stop. It's not necessarily about how the person's receiving it, because you you (laughs) can easily get into situations where you're like, oh, but I do it to so-and-so, and and they're fine with it kind of thing. So therefore, I thought it was fine to do it in this other situation, which kind of masks the fact that it's just not an okay thing overall, and you don't want to start making it situational.
1: Yeah, and I think it's just respect, isn't it? (laughs) Particularly in that example, that if you respect two people individually to equal measures then you're not going to touch one person's hair and not touch the other person's hair but you also need to think about personal space for example because I think it's hugely intruding into personal space isn't it whether or not you're doing it in a celebrating differences sort of way or doing it coming from a less positive place absolutely
2: and it often as I say it often is from a celebratory way I think there's a lot of other characteristics a lot of other people that experience things like that for example when you're pregnant lots of people touch the bump and it's all of a sudden I wasn't showing a bump yesterday and nobody touched me but I'm showing a bump today (laughs) and like everybody in Sainsbury's has had a rub yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's like things like that or also bold men get that quite a lot that's actually come out that people Mm. touch their heads in a way and that's kind of a way to build a rapport and so on and so forth. But sometimes it's quite nice to build a rapport by just
1: having a conversation without having maybe a bit of banter about the fact that you're bold. I guess specifically thinking about the workplace, what are the sort of situations where microaggressions are more prevalent?
2: I would say that if you have quite a social workplace where you all get along quite well, where you have a lot of after work drinks or workplace banter, things like that can kind of come up. And it comes kind of hand in hand with what you said, Dan, about speaking about the things that you do with your friends that you might not necessarily do with other people. Quite often in those settings, when there is a lot of banter, that's when it can come up and when it can come about. And I think the major challenge with that is that although you are friends and colleagues, it is still a workplace. Mm. So there are still those other structures in place that mean you wouldn't address things in exactly the same way. There's different levels of seniority and so on and so forth. And you might end up being on the receiving end, for example, of workplace banter continuously. That kind of becomes your thing. That kind of becomes your character because you don't really know how to address Mm. it maybe.
1: And I suppose there's also the Another colleague could observe the behavior and be offended by it or affected by it, I should say, either way, really. So either they feel that it's appropriate to behave like that in the workplace because they see two people who happen to also be friends behaving like that, or actually they associate with a certain minority characteristic and they don't like the way that they hear someone speaking to someone else, even if it was meant in a very friendly way. Because I yeah. that's a, again, the unintended consequence of the way that you're behaving. Absolutely. And I think quite a lot of it sometimes happens as well
2: when you're trying to build rapport with somebody and trying to Mm -hmm. find that common ground. You will observe behaviours and observe the way that they've interacted with others and go forward on that basis. I think in my experience, I've had it, for example, where people ask me quite a lot about my name. I have an unusual name and that's absolutely fine. I love my name now. People often ask where I'm from. And if I say Birmingham, <laughs> it's quite quickly responded with, OK, yes, but where are you really from? And then you end up delving into the history of Sierra mm. Leone, which is where I'm from. And then people start talking about war and blood diamonds and all this kind of thing. And I really did just come down for a latte and a Kit Kat. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> things like that, when people are really trying to build a rapport, it actually becomes a little bit more intrusive than
0: you might have intended or chosen to start that relationship. It's definitely possible people sort of try too hard in those little situations, isn't it? They were just searching for something and have landed on really on the wrong thing. And through discussions like this, it's helpful people can hopefully learn that those are just the wrong thing to try and get into, or that's the wrong way of talking about it. I'm really glad you brought up the subject of names, because we talked about that briefly, didn't we, sort of off air, And that's something that I've tried to become a lot more conscious of. I wonder if maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about how the role of names and getting names wrong and those sort of things can play into the microaggressions thing.
2: Names is a really big thing. In microaggressions. So, examples would be being frequently told your name is too hard to pronounce, people giving, I think, minorities nicknames or repeatedly not pronouncing the name correctly. And that's a real challenging one because people often don't realise that they haven't pronounced it incorrectly again. I think it might be easier to break it down. So, in terms of saying your name is too hard to pronounce, the underlying message is a negative one because essentially it's saying that your identity isn't worth the effort to learn. It isn't too hard to pronounce. It's just more unusual or maybe more difficult to pronounce. And there are a lot of European names that are potentially more difficult to pronounce, but we pronounce them. Irish names, for example, they are written very differently to how they're pronounced, but we read them, we recognize them and we pronounce them. And it's about making
0: the effort to do that with everybody. I think that point around not pronouncing names correctly is a really important one. But let's be honest, I think that there are certain people that sometimes almost make a show of deliberately not pronouncing it right. And it's almost, is it semi-banter? Is it like a deliberate kind of sly it's all somewhere in there, isn't it? I've certainly tried to become a lot more sensitive to that, But I think it clearly is a slight if you're deliberately mispronouncing yeah. someone's name or even not making sufficient effort to pronounce it properly. Mm. That's something that could be picked up a lot more.
2: And I'd say that you've kind of hit the nail on the head in that you're not sure, is it a slight? Is it intentional? Is it banter? You don't really know where it fits at the time. So what do you say? How do you address it? How do you respond to that? That can be... A challenge but then mm. on the flip side of that there are people that often just say I'm really sorry I keep getting it wrong I'm trying to get it right and I keep getting this wrong how do I not get it wrong how do mm. I not mistake you for other people in the workplace and these are legitimate questions that people have asked and the only bit of advice that I can really give is Number one, diversify your media, widen your friendship group, expose yourself to different things because our brains are trained to be efficient. So if you're not recognizing these things and not able to get your mouth around these sounds and it keeps not sticking in your mind, really expose yourself to different things so that that becomes more familiar to you. Equally something that I've taken upon myself in terms of my interactions with others is to be quite clear up front and say, hi, my name is Mamawa Ture, pleased to meet you. A lot of people get my name wrong, and I'm sure by the third time you'll be too embarrassed to ask. So every time I see you, I'm going to introduce myself and say, hi, my name is Mamawa Ture, until you tell me to stop and until you have it. And the reason that I do that is because there seems to be a lot of caution in this space, and people Mm. don't want to get things wrong. And I understand, even in my own life, you don't want to keep asking the same question again. And so I kind of try and make that space more easy, try and make that conversation easier and try and also show other people around me how we can all have more of these conversations to change these cultures in our workplaces and talk about real, tangible things, not abstract, but real. Mm. So yeah, I give permission to ask my name and I tell you that I'll Mm. tell you. I'll ask somebody else.
0: One other negative version of that is people get too cautious. They're really scared of getting it wrong. So they somehow avoid saying your name at all. And that's like even weirder, or that's also (laughs) weird. And so it's kind of how can we try and get through that?
2: So maybe asking permission to ask the name and apologizing if you get it wrong. But there is nothing wrong with asking somebody else if you've got third time round and you're still not sure you're pronouncing it right, just double check with somebody else how to pronounce it properly. And that's something that really relieves the burden of the person who's experiencing it. Yeah. It's hard work telling everybody in a 800 deep or however large organisation what your name is that often. The more people
1: to have those conversations and support that, the better. You've given us a really great tangible example of how we can sort of make things better. I wonder if you could just spend a couple of minutes On both sides of that, I suppose. So things that we should be looking out for to catch microaggressions as they're happening or before they happen, if possible. But I realise that's not always possible when you're observing them. But then also any other sort of tips that we can help move things forward in a positive way.
2: In this respect, I generally try and keep it as simple as possible because it can be quite confusing to know what to look out for. Number one, I would think about the setting. So in the workplace, what is it that feels right and appropriate? in the workplace and number two would everybody feel comfortable Mm -hmm. with this behavior or this remark if there were other people in the room who aren't there at the moment Mm -hmm. and the third one and probably the most important one I'd say is to trust your gut so Mm -hmm. the reason that microaggressions are so challenging to tackle is because they happen so quickly you don't really know that they've happened but we've all had that situation or that scenario maybe when you're in a group and somebody makes a joke, maybe at your expense or somebody else's. You don't really find it funny, but you don't want to bring it up and address it at the time. And everybody's got that kind of strange laugh where they go, <laughs> that that yeah. feeling is something that you should hold on to. And if you have that feeling in any given setting, then question it and question why you weren't laughing or why you weren't comfortable there
1: because that's often where you'll find microaggressions lie. And I have actually, just on that example, I have had situations where we've had the awkward laugh moment in the pub. And then afterwards, you have a quiet one-to-one conversation with someone else where you say, did you find that weird too? And actually, the sort of strength in numbers really helps, I think, in those situations, doesn't it? Because you might both be talking about something that was directed at a third person. But if both of you feel uncomfortable, it's sort of... It means it's reasonable to feel uncomfortable about it and you have more strength in your view, I suppose. And then obviously the helpful further step is to respectfully tell the person that made the comment that no one really appreciated that that sat slightly strangely to people.
0: That's exactly it, isn't it? I guess it's kind of getting that confidence to find a way to basically just deal with it with the person. I suppose we're talking either in the moment, aren't we, or someone saying to them, later, look, by the way, just like to talk to you about the comment you made. Didn't feel it was appropriate. Didn't feel it was a good thing to say kind of thing. Just having those conversations, that's not easy for any of us, I suppose. But I suppose it's incumbent on everyone who's party to those conversations, who senses it, to sort of take it upon themselves to say, actually, fairly quickly, I need to just have a little chat to say, look, that thing, that wasn't okay.
1: And I suppose as much as those conversations aren't comfortable for any of us to have, it's also not comfortable to be the brunt of the joke every time or face those microaggressions.
0: So. Now, uh, taking a bit of a step back, love to get your take on where you think diversity and inclusion conversations have got to. And I suppose part of that question, would your role as a consultant in that space have existed a few years ago? And how do you see that whole space changing? That's a lot there. Sorry, that was a lot to answer, but I, I think you're interested the listeners.
2: How many questions was that? Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's a terrible Cheating. interview technique. Terrible technique. Answer three <laughs> questions in one. Question is, what's your sense of where we've got to in terms of the diversity and inclusion conversation?
2: My sense is that We've moved on from questioning whether it's a necessity, Mm. from questioning whether these things are real. And Mm -hmm. largely, we're moving on to accepting that different people have different versions of lived experience. We have a different reality in this space. And that's positive. Mm -hmm. I think we're at a place where we can talk openly about things, despite the fact that there's a lot of caution about getting it wrong. We're now in a place where people are actually thinking about Getting it wrong rather than Mm -hmm. actually not believing that these things exist at all. I don't think the role of DI consultant existed a few years ago. I think the pandemic has helped that because it forced us all into a place where we were all really vulnerable at the same time and all Mm -hmm. experiencing so many things at the same time. So many things happened globally at that time that we couldn't ignore them. And it highlighted the importance of work in this area. So I'm really pleased that we're actually at least talking openly, frankly, and
1: honestly about these things. And perhaps if we bring things in slightly more, so from sort of longer term trends to, let's say, the next 12 months, what kind of progress do you want to see in the next 12 months? What do you want people to be thinking and talking about in just the year's time?
2: In the next 12 months, Personally, I think I'd like to have moved. I'd like to see more movement beyond thinking and talking to more tangible action. I think that there have been a lot of discussions and there has been a lot of thinking around various strategies and how people could approach things to get them right. But almost waiting for the perfect approach and the perfect way to do things inevitably means that you're not really doing very much and day to day there are people working in equal environments while we're debating how to address it so I'd like to see a little more action and a little less caution because I think we've had a lot of time to be cautious and I think almost conversations like this are people like me who my work is largely about lived experience giving permission to do something rather than
0: waiting for you to do anything. Just quickly on that, where would you place financial services compared with other industries behind the in
2: Well, financial services is kind of my area, so I don't mm. have huge in-depth knowledge of other areas. I mean, there are certain areas like, I suppose, the tech industry and things that are largely male-dominated, and there are other industries that have different levels of diversity. I would say that financial services, I think we've been very good at maybe patting ourselves on the back and thinking that we've been doing probably a better job than we have for some time. Mm -hmm. Financial services is huge. It's so wide. It encompasses law, pensions, investments. There's so actuarial advice. There's so much in financial services. And still, when you look at For example, representation, when you hear people's opinions of what it's like to work in financial services, it just echoes all of these things that we're talking about now. When you've got such a vast pool, we should be maybe further along than we are, or at least we have the means to address that. It's not like there isn't the through flow of people entering into financial services that you can make a real
1: difference so, Mawa, as we get to the end of this episode, thank you so much. There have been so many moments in this episode that kind of really make you stop and think. So, hopefully, the listeners have really enjoyed it. What would be the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away?
2: Something is better than nothing, I'd say. Don't be afraid of getting it wrong. I think we can all try to do something, even locally, and at local level, I mean, even individually, to make a difference and to drive inclusion. So, just try.
0: Yeah, not about leaving it to your company's diversity an inclusion policy or head of that. We can all do little things. That's a really nice thought. What do you think is the most underappreciated part of this whole area?
2: I would say the psychological toll that it can have on the recipients. And I would say that's largely not just because of the frequency of how often microaggressions can occur, but because you spend such a long time thinking did that happen? Wait, that mm. did happen. I should have done something about it. I didn't do something about it. And now I feel awful. There's a kind of mm. like a cycle once mm. you start to realize that it happens and all these moments kind of add up. And then, equally, when you have that conversation, it's almost like you're having to convince somebody of what is your existence or your reality. And that can be quite challenging in the inclusion space, in the EDI space. A lot of the work is driven by people who actually are advocating for characteristics that they hold. And I think that's something that's really underappreciated, that when people have been leading employee network groups and things like that, that they've been having the same conversations for years about what is actually their existence. And they're doing it in a really diplomatic way, which is so positive. It can be quite hard work for anybody
1: in this space we had similar messages actually when we spoke to Gavin Lewis a couple of years ago in terms of don't just pin it all on me to fix this problem that isn't my fault so that message came across really strongly now a final question from me do you have any recommendations for the listeners
2: only a couple so I don't get that much time to read anymore with three children there's a lot (laughs) on BBC One and iPlayer we are black and British I don't know if any of you saw that but they brought did, together did. it was really really interesting they brought together six black Brits from all over the country and they had different backgrounds they each shared a personal story and posed a question for the group to discuss some of the questions were like why is it so hard for black men to come out or should I marry inside or outside of my race About stop and search, should that be abolished? Things like that, real topical things. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting seeing how, although everybody is under the umbrella of Black and British, how there can be so many different opinions and so many different thoughts on the best way to move forward. Mm -hmm. And for me, it really highlighted just how wide and how challenging a topic this is, how challenging it is to move forward in this space and do something positive when we all think really differently. So that was good.
0: I think aside
2: from that, I'd just say, talk to more people. Talk to people that you don't normally talk to. It doesn't always have to be about books and things like that. There's a lot that you can learn from just making new friends and just expanding your group.
1: Do you know, I love that. I mean, to be fair, we usually direct it as a sort of books, TV shows, podcast, but we've never had the recommendation. Just chat, talk to people. It's, I really love that. It's, it's a great. great. It's,
0: it's brilliant. It's so well-timed as well, because it just feels like we're just about to finally get back to a bit more of an in-person situation, potentially. Yeah. People might actually be in those situations a bit more. That might be a bit, a little bit easier for them to do than it has been for the last few years. What a lovely note to end on. Absolutely. Maui, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks, Mauer, and that's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Join us again next week for another episode. Take care.
2: Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.